Hello, and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode three, and today we'll be talking about the Trent Horn-Jacob Imam debate on 401ks. This was of particular interest to me because it got me set on a path to discuss especially shareholding. And I have an article coming out responding to Jacob and Mark Barnes' claims around shareholding from New Polity. Uh, when I originally saw this uh, episode, it, it really struck me. And so I wanted to kind of give my thoughts, especially now that New Polity has posted uh, a blog post on this topic. Uh, just last week. And, and also one of my friends had asked me to kind of give my thoughts as well. So I want to start off by just kind of giving some of my general comments, then getting into Jacob and Trent's positions, what I think's their strengths and weaknesses, and then kind of get into the their opening statements and discuss some of their arguments specifically. Won't necessarily dig into all the cross-examines and everything, but I think that's kind of where I'll, I'll take it and then kind of a few takeaways of of what I take at this. Um, one of the things I want to mention, though, is that I have a lot of respect for Jacob because of what he's doing. I think his work at the St. Joseph College uh, and some of his goals are particularly noble. Uh, but I, I do disagree with him, and I think his arguments here don't work. So this isn't anything against him personally. This is just focused on his his arguments. So the first thing I kind of wanted to point out was, as a as a general comment about the debate, I think the debate was uh, largely unsuccessful, and that's because the two of them discussed 401ks, but only 401ks in terms of stocks. Now, if you are familiar with 401ks, typically you can invest in mutual funds in your 401k. Now there are stock 401 or there's stock mutual funds, but there's also bond mutual funds. And so that is a wide range of investment that was just left unaddressed. So, okay, if we take Jacob's position, okay, so stock trading uh, and investing in stock mutual funds is not licit, but well, what is the case for bond funds? can you invest in those in a 401k? So I thought that was a big issue. Uh, also, I want to point out here and clarify, and Jacob uh, alluded to this briefly at one point, but uh, when you invest in a mutual fund, you are not actually uh, an owner of the company. Uh, so you don't actually own stock in that company. You don't have an ownership claim against any of those companies. Rather, you have uh, an account at the mutual fund. So really, it's more like you're invested uh, in the mutual fund than in the uh, stocks. So I think that's a, a very important clarification to make because there is a, a level of remoteness that is increased because of your investing in a mutual fund and not in those underlying companies. So kind of moving to, to Jacob's position, what I really notice about this is that there's two kind of major problems that I see with his position. So the major uh, position that he's taking is that 401ks are generally immoral. And so at times he seems to allow for 
you know, investing in these mutual funds in a 401k out of necessity. He goes on to suggest that this necessity is extremely rare or non-existent, but he, he wants to say that it's still generally immoral. Now, the problem I see with that is because his argument against speculation is that it seems speculation is intrinsically evil. He never says that specifically, but he, he often suggests it saying specula speculation is a complete act and that it's evil and no matter of intention can change that. Uh, in the blog post that was recently posted on New Polity, they refer to uh, speculation as an intrinsically disordered act. Why they use disordered rather than evil, I'm not entirely sure about. But uh, in any case, there seems to be this disconnect. Because if in speculation is truly intrinsically evil, then even necessity cannot make it permissible. That's indeed what intrinsically evil means. No matter of circumstances can change it into a good act, something that we uh, can do. So I think that is a deeply problematic part of Jacob's argument, and he really needs to address that. The other thing is it seems like Jacob is using two different definitions of speculation. So on the one hand, he references this economic definition, which is more or less to buy low in order to sell high, and that's fine. But there's no reference to labor in that definition, that economic definition he's using. But then he goes on to cite this traditional definition where it's buying low to sell high without labor. And I would really like to see him actually explain where that traditional definition is coming from. He cites this uh, Latin phrase, uh, faciendo uh, questus, I think. And I looked at Aquinas's treatment of trading and cheating and um, usury, and I didn't see him actually use that phrase or even uh, questus uh, anywhere in there. So I, I'd really like to understand what this tradition is and the context that that phrase is being used in. Kind of getting into Trent's position. So Trent at the end makes really clear that his whole purpose in engaging in this debate is to help calm people's consciences because he's seeing people empty out their retirement accounts because of what it, Jacob is saying. And so he focuses on this idea that whatever the magisterium has not proclaimed to be illicit is permissible. That is a really uh, strange claim because it's so obviously false, at least the way that he phrases that because there are many illicit activities that the magisterium hasn't explicitly condemned, but are condemned from the moral law. You know, we, they're not permissible. So it's, it's confusing what he's trying to do there. One could say that, well, they're not, they're permissible or they're not illicit from faith, that in faith we are uh, permitted to do them. But still, there, there's that question of the moral law um, and so I think Trent's position there is a little shaky. It's, it's a little scandalous, in fact, I think, the way that he phrases that. So 
kind of getting into Jacob's particular arguments now, one of the things that I really want to focus on um, is kind of this distinction I'll make between some of his principled arguments, which kind of focus on the, the nature of speculation or that speculation as such, uh, versus more prudential or pragmatic arguments. So uh, among those prudential or uh, principled arguments, uh, most of them, almost all of them, are from authority. So Augustine says, Aquinas says, John Paul says, and so forth. The only real kind of argument that has kind of a, a rational appeal to it among these principal arguments is this idea of scalping. And he compares scalping to trading. And I, I think this is, uh, it doesn't work. I think the analogy really breaks down because what we find reprehensible about scalping is not so much that the scalper buys low and sells high, but that the scalper buys low and sells exceedingly high. He sells at unjustly high prices. So you buy a $10 ticket to a concert and then you sell it for $100 or $200 with nothing having changed. And so this, I think, is where the analogy really breaks down with stocks because with a stock, the business is dynamic, it's producing goods, it's changing, the management is changing. So potentially the value of that business is changing over time. Whereas the case with a ticket to a, a concert, you know, nothing has changed. So why should its value change at all? Now, if it was found out like maybe uh, a month later after buying the ticket that, uh, you know, you had a no-name band at that concert and now it was going to be some famous band like you know Aerosmith or Rolling Stones or, or whatever then yeah the value of that ticket increased uh, there's no doubt about that and it seems then that you could sell it justly at a higher price so um, I don't think that argument that analogy with scalping really works now with a lot of the arguments from authority, a lot of what I've seen and having written that article uh, that I mentioned earlier is that Jacob really takes a lot of these authors out of context. And so they don't really support his position once they're read in context. So for example, he talks about Augustine and Aquinas talking about how it's, um, eliciter from vice to buy low and sell high. The issue with that, though, is that it's taken from this uh, question uh, in the second part of the second part, question 77, article 1, and its response to the second objection. And so here it's actually talking about selling a thing for more than it's worth, which goes back to the just price theory. And this is particularly about just price because Augustine brings up and Aquinas points this out about a man who sells a thing at its just price when the seller is selling it lower than that out of ignorance. And so this is where Aquinas is clarifying that. So it seems that this whole buying low and selling high has to do with uh, buying low or buying high at unjust prices. But the question then remains, well, can you trade for a profit 
buying and selling at just prices. Now, if Aquinas actually did condemn uh, buying low and selling high without qualification, then he would be condemning all trading, which he, in the following article, Article 4, actually says is licit under the right conditions. So in that Article 4, he talks about trading, which involves uh, buying low and selling high. And he says that the evil there is in the intention, is in seeking profit for his himself. And Jacob points this out, but he says that uh, having a right intention is doesn't make it licit, which is completely contrary to Aquinas, because Aquinas says that if you have the right intention, if you're not seeking profit for itself, but you're seeking it for the upkeep of your family, for the common good of the society, for uh, supporting the needy. These were some of these were uh, examples that uh, Trent brought up, like uh, supporting the needy. Aquinas says yes, that those are virtuous ends that it is licit to pursue, um, you know, trading for. So, uh, you know. Once you look at this in context, it really cuts against Jacob's position. Now, Jacob does uh, quote Aquinas in this particular article, so he's more than aware of it. Uh, in response, in uh, Aquinas's response to the first objection, and he Jacob quotes this part where, uh, if the tradesman does change the good, uh, then he receives the reward of his labor. Now, what Jacob suggests there uh, rhetorically, because he doesn't lay it out explicitly, is then the man who doesn't change the thing, he doesn't labor, uh, does not deserve profit, which is an obvious fallacy. And taking that uh, whole response into context, what uh, Aquinas is saying there is, yes, the man who changes it receives the reward of his labor, the man who doesn't change it can receive profit licitly if he doesn't seek uh, profit as an end in itself. And so that's then repeating what he, he discusses in the body of the, of the question. So really here, you see how Jacob is taking a lot of this out of context and putting it back into that context really gives a different picture of what's going on. And I think that is is a massive problem for Jacob. Uh, it's unfortunate that Trent didn't actually study these texts because Trent was aware of and read um, Jacob's article on shareholding, where he cites some of these texts. And so if and so if Trent was uh, had studied these texts, he could have been prepared to respond to these. And I think there's a similar situation with respect to centesimus annus. And the big problem here is that Jacob is insisting that John Paul is using a particular definition with respect to speculation. The issue there is that in centesimus annus, John Paul never actually references buying high to sell low, or excuse me, buying low to sell high. And so Jacob has to get this 
definition of speculation into Satessimus Annos. And Trent uh, pushes him on that. And I think that is Trent's strongest point because it's not clear that John Paul is using that definition that uh, Jacob is claiming. So he references this technical definition and it's, you know, okay, there's a technical definition for speculation, but Jacob doesn't give a good reason why John Paul is actually using that definition. Um, he just asserts that it's the case. Whereas uh, Trent really pushes him and says, well, you know, prove it. And I think there is good reason to believe that he's not. He's not actually using that, that definition. Uh, for example, when, when John Paul is talking about, um, in one of these passages, he talks about the way in which uh, the, means of the ownership of the means of production becomes illegitimate when the, uh, the owner uh, either doesn't use the means of production or impedes workers. And so I think here, I mean, that has nothing at all to do with trading. And in that context, again, it seems like, you know, this is something that has to do with something more fraudulent, which is what Trent refers to from the catechism, is that these are kind of fraudulent activities to drive up prices. So the, again, I, it's not obvious that John Paul is using that definition and it doesn't seem like there's a good reason to assert that he is, or at least Jacob doesn't provide a good enough reason. So, um, and I think a lot of the other arguments he makes are, are very similar to that. Getting into kind of some of his pragmatic arguments, like uh, the wasted energy and lack of innovation and technology and things like that, these really don't actually support his thesis that 401ks are generally immoral because it's like, okay, well, so, you know, a lot of energy is wasted or used uh, in stock trading. Okay, well, do something about that. Limit intraday trading. That would reduce a lot of energy use. That doesn't say anything about 401ks generally. Um, with some of the, the claims that he makes about the lack of innovation, our food is poor and, and so forth, it's really not even convincing that that has anything to do with 401ks. Because, you know, the fact that those things, you know, he claims started happening in the 80s and uh, so did 401ks and it's like, okay, so what? Um, you know, there's a kind of post hoc fallacy there. Uh, and so there, there's a lot more uh, research and evidence required to assert that those two are linked and Jacob at least didn't provide it. So um, one of the good points though that I think that um, Jacob makes is that investing is a moral act. That is, that is a huge point because there's all sorts of ways in which we treat stock trading as not a moral act. And so that is a good point. I think it's something that needs to be really considered. But kind of along that line is, just as uh, Jacob even admits, not all of us are very good at investing. 
And so we might want to rely on a financial advisor or you know, a mutual fund uh, director to invest our money for us because we're not gonna invest it as good. And it's similar to the case where, well, you may not be good at managing a rental, but maybe you want to hire someone to manage it for you. So you'll want to make sure that they're acting in your best interest and also acting morally. But that argument is kind of an argument that investing is a moral act, but using someone who's going to invest for you is also uh, a reasonable thing to do. So moving on to kind of Trent's opening, the, one of the things that I really didn't like about Trent's opening was that he, it seemed very scattershot. He was very unprepared, whereas um, Jacob definitely had something written out. He had thought about it very thoroughly. Trent made a few different points that he maybe had prepared, but he was also responding to, to Jacob's opening, and maybe that's a good idea, but it just made it feel that he was at a rhetorical disadvantage. And again, you know, Trent was trying to focus on this uh, specific condemnation sort of thing, which I thought was um, just didn't work. The other thing, and I wish that Jacob had really pushed him on this, was that, uh, and he did a little bit, but I think it, it should have been a stronger point, was that Trent was like, okay, well, we can ignore the church fathers and the medieval doctors because they were overly rigorous or their theories are out of favor, but, um, you know, a small set of modern bishops we should listen to. So obviously that argument is going to cut both ways. So if you want to ignore, you know, the church fathers um, with their really eminent authority um, as being too rigorous, then, you know, why not ignore the, the bishops, uh, the modern bishops for being overly lax? Uh, Jacob does kind of respond to that, but I thought it could have been much better. Um, and Jacob's response was he was just happy to dismiss the bishops because they weren't the, the pillars of light. And I think he could have done that in a much better rhetorical way. One of the things that I, I really like uh, with Trent was calling Jacob out on the issue of gold because Jacob does uh, has suggested that buying gold or investing in gold is is a good idea and I think that's that's it's problematic because the what he suggests is that uh, buying gold and selling it later is just a matter of re retaining your purchasing price or your purchasing power and there's two main problems that I see with that first of all is that I think Jacob is wrong that gold has retained its purchasing power consistently over time because maybe he's looking at different data than I am, but I looked at the inflation adjusted price of gold historically over the past hundred years, and it's very obvious that there are periods when the price of gold, the real price, um, went up a lot. And so you could potentially have invested in gold or bought gold at different periods and you could have made, uh, you know, several times of a return. You could have made five times what you invested back. So that I don't think works, uh, or I don't think that's true. 
And the second part is this idea of retaining your purchasing price. Now, morally, what uh, Jacob is arguing is that speculation is intrinsically evil. And so there's a very firm commitment there and has to do with the nature of speculation itself. And he suggests that there is no profit there because you're retaining your purchasing price. The issue, though, is what do purchasing price with respect to what? Because um, there isn't a real sense in which um, inflation, uh, you know, the purchase our purchasing price is just going down for everything. Because um, it's not like uh, every the cost of everything is going up by two percent, and part of this is because um, the cost of you know inflation isn't solely driven by the amount of money that's in the economy. It, there's other factors that go into it. So, for example, uh, a computer you could have bought in uh, 1980. Uh, you can't even buy now because its its value is so small. You can buy a computer that's thousands of times, if not millions of times, more powerful. And so computers with respect to dollars have deflated significantly. Uh, but as I'm sure everyone's aware, healthcare has gone the other way. Is healthcare is much, 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 much more expensive than it was, uh, you know, 40 years ago. So to say in general that investing in gold retains your purchasing power doesn't really seem to have the level of moral certainty that you would need based on the, the kind of argument that, that Jacob is trying to suggest here. So I, I don't think that uh, gold as an investment to purchasing your price to retain your purchasing power is something that actually happens uh, because of the way the price of gold has been going over the past hundred years. And I don't think it, it makes moral sense to talk about not making a profit off of it because you're only talking about moral or the purchasing price with respect to, uh, you know, potentially an aggregate of goods which is more like a statistical argument than a kind of principled argument. Um, so I, I think that's kind of the, the issue with the gold. I, I just don't, I don't see it working for uh, Jacob. The other thing is that Trent kind of moves into a cooperation of evil aspect of his argument. I don't think this is as relevant because I, I think it's more part of Trent's idea of trying to make uh, stock trading seem like it's uh, morally acceptable. And so it's kind of more of a positive argument, whereas at the beginning he was pushing that Jacob had the, the burden of proof, and I think that's true. But I think it was unnecessary to kind of get into the cooperation of evil, not only because it doesn't actually address what um, Jacob is going after, but also because I think he, he unnecessarily takes on some of the burden of proof there. And one of the final things is that Trent tried to make this distinction between buying something from a company and buying ownership of a company. One of the issues I see with that type of 
trying to draw that analogy that, well, if I can buy a good from a company that really directly supports that company, why can't I buy ownership in that company? And I think the big thing is to realize that there is uh, really a categorical difference because buying something from a company may support it in some way. But when you buy the uh, stock, you actually gain some ownership of the company and that necessarily implies some sort of responsibility over the company. And so the issue then is that, well, if that company is doing bad things, then uh, you have a certain responsibility to take that into consideration. So I don't think that that quite works either. Um, yeah, so th that's kind of my perspective on their arguments. Uh, one of the things I kind of wanted to point out though, uh, this came up several times and I don't think they came to a very good conclusion about it was this idea of buying stock um, doesn't actually support the company. And I think there's some nuance there to to draw out. Because I, I think Jacob is correct in noting that the money that you pay for the stock does not go to the company. That is certainly true. However, I think there is a case to be made that it does indirectly support the company. So, uh, you know, more of a an indirect support, though, would be in the case of, of an IPO. So when a company uh, goes public, they offer a first kind of initial public offering where people can buy up their stock. This can be, uh, this, this is where the, the company actually gets uh, an influx of capital from the market. So this though, is supported by the existence of secondary markets. So the investors who are typically going to engage in IPOs are probably not going to want to retain that ownership for long periods. They're maybe going to uh, buy that investment and then they're going to want to be eventually be able to get out of that to maybe invest in another company as well. And so what the secondary markets allow, so the stock market, allows for them to get in on that initial investment, but eventually be able to get out. And this isn't any different than any other secondary market. You know, if I, you know, buy my lawnmower, maybe I want to buy it and I plan to mow my lawn for the next few years, but we're going to, uh, you know, change the lawn so it's, uh, you know, just stone, for example. And so I'll buy my lawnmower knowing that I'm going to sell it later and having that intention to sell it later. Um, and the fact that the secondary markets exist make that much easier. And I think that is uh, also a general uh, argument for the stock markets is that it allows liquidity for investors. So, you know, if you decide to buy from a company you eventually can get out of it and then do other things with your money. And this is exactly what we see in retirement accounts is that, okay, I'm going to invest in these companies, but eventually I want to use that to, to pay for my, my retirement, for example. 
So that, that's one potential positive argument for stocks, and it's a common one. So just to kind of wrap it up with uh, a few key takeaways, one of the things, like I, I said before, was investment is a moral act, and it requires moral consideration. I think that's a very important thing to consider. The other thing is that uh, Jacob brought up this question of um, increasing the, you know, decreasing uh, alienation, developing family ties, uh, and, and things of that sort. And certainly I agree with that. So, you know, that might be another pragmatic question, like how do we deal with 401ks uh, with respect to that? And certainly if he has a good argument that 401ks lead to uh, alienation and, and these other issues, like, okay, let's find a different way. Uh, the speculation argument is much different than that. Um, potentially one way you could do that is, um, one way you could see 401ks being used in this sort of integrated way is that, you know, if it was just kind of expected that when you retired, you moved uh, near your, your children or in with your children, that you then use your retirement income to support not only yourself, but also your your children as well. So, I mean, that's one potential way of resolving that type of alienation conflict. So the, the other thing is, I think just Jacob's argument uh, just doesn't work. Um, and so, uh, you know, I don't think he shows that 401ks or, or even stock trading is generally immoral. And the biggest problem is that he relies on, on arguments from authority. It'd be really interesting to see him to provide some sort of, you know, rational argument why trading is illicit uh, without labor. Because what we see in Aquinas is that really what his issue is is that you seek profit for itself and in uh, the demalo or on evil the way that aquinas explains that is evil is because you're putting the creature ahead of the creator and that makes perfect sense but it's not entirely clear from jacob why trading without labor is is evil from a kind of rational perspective um, you know, he tries to do this by referencing the common good and the way that we're supposed to support each other through our labor, but it's it's very vague and it's just not very convincing. So uh, I think that's part of the reason he relies on on arguments from authority so much. But as, as I've kind of discussed, I, I don't think those work because uh, he's taking a lot of these authorities out of context. And one final thing I'll kind of point out, given the the, the nature of this uh, podcast is that I think that it's pretty obvious that what Trent has to say about usury is just wrong. Uh, he gets very, very incorrect uh, by uh, suggesting that the church somehow changed its teaching because of the development in economics. There's absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever. So those are my thoughts about the debate. Uh, I hope that um, this has kind of helped 
add to the discussion uh, and clarified some some of the topics and if you have uh, any questions or thoughts or um, things that you thought I got wrong or, or right you know feel free to email me and we can uh, continue the discussion so I appreciate you listening to this and I'm very happy to have talked to you today so thanks